Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Dead Letters Podcast. I'm your host, VP Morris. Today, I want to start off the show with a trigger warning. This episode will contain themes of suicide and self-harm, so I highly recommend that anyone who is sensitive to those issues proceeds with caution or skips over parts that may be upsetting to them, or even turn away from the episode altogether if it's just too much. I completely understand. I also left some information on suicide hotlines and various other mental health resources in the show notes below, so if you or someone you know is struggling, I highly encourage you to reach out and not let the problem get any worse than it already is. If uh, any of these resources are out of your area, if you're not in the United States or North America, please seek help in whatever country you are residing in. And now for a quick recap. In the last episode, Marco and Fiona broke into Heather's house, the woman who gave Fiona her first dead letters, and she did not react so kindly to this. It turns out that she is under strict orders from Charlotte to give Fiona certain information at certain periods of time, and messing with that can have grave consequences. Now, let's get into it. The Dead Letters Podcast, Episode 6, Fall from Grace. Marco and I gaped at Heather's scars. What happened? Did you get burned? I asked, knowing full well that this was not what a burn victim looked like. But I couldn't help make the comparison between flames and the long red strokes that covered her body. No, Heather answered, now uncomfortable in her half-nakedness. But it felt like it. I knew I couldn't, but I wanted to touch her. I wanted to feel the raised, tough skin as it etched across her body. I wanted to know the full weight of the consequences that came with ignoring my fate. Heather turned her arms around so we could see the full extent of her injuries. Are you taking this seriously now? She asked. Neither of us answered, frustrating her even more. She feverishly pulled back on her sweater and tied the scarf around her neck. Within a moment, it looked like she had never been undressed in the first place. Are you going to tell us what happened? Marco asked. Not yet. You're not ready. I have been instructed to keep all information about the previous recipients of the dead letters a secret, especially from you. Wait. My vision blurred. I became dizzy, just at the mere mention of there being other people out there who received letters like me. There are others? Can I speak to them? Ugh. Heather groaned in annoyance. She took us both by the wrist and dragged us downstairs. I did not leave an important meeting at my law firm to explain this to all of you now. Fiona, you have to, and I mean have to, refrain from coming back here or talking to me or doing any digging of any kind until the trying time which Charlotte has warned you about has passed. It should be coming soon. You won't have to wait much longer to get the answers to the questions you're dying to know, Heather told me as she ushered us out the front door. Hold on, said Marco. If she's going to find out later, why not just tell her now? Heather's face crumpled, and for the first time I could see the fine lines on her forehead and around her mouth. Her eyes grew heavy like a cloud just before a storm. Because, in my last letter, it said if I told you anything that was going on before the appropriate time, one of my children would die. Heather put her hand over her face to shield us from seeing her become so emotional. Is that reason enough? Right then and there, I knew this couldn't be an elaborate prank or some strange coincidence or miscommunication. It had to be real. I nodded, silently agreeing to refrain from pushing the issue further. I'll talk to you later then, when it's time, I said. I took a step out the front door. She looked relieved as we left. In the car, I drove us towards campus. Do you regret being dragged into all of this? I asked, feeling guilty. No, not at all. It's kind of a cool mystery, he said. 
Oh, you like mysteries. I squinted at him. I didn't see the black hoodie wearing video game playing science nerd I had known as Marco to be the type who loved a classic whodunit. Yeah. Totally. At this one foster home, the mom had nothing but the old movie channel running all the time. So I've seen all of the old-fashioned detective stories in every Hitchcock special. It was probably my favorite part of growing up. Marco smoothed back his hair and straightened his shirt, feeling slightly uncomfortable in his new look. Oh, I didn't know you were in foster care. I felt embarrassed, like this was something I should have known already. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't great, but it wasn't as bad as some kids have it. I'm glad they were able to keep me and my sister together the whole time. Some social worker thought it would be too traumatic to separate us after what happened. He said, slouching in his seat like it was no big deal. After what happened, I asked. Had he already told me and I forgot? No. That couldn't be. Well... He began. His voice shook a little. My... Dad murdered my mom. Holy shit, I blurted out. Sorry, I didn't know what to say. It's fine with me. I don't think there is an appropriate response. He looked away from me and gazed out the window at the passing bare trees and gray little houses. I couldn't believe how casually he talked about it, but I guess he must have had some time to process this tragedy. How old are you? If you don't mind me asking, I forced myself to focus on the road. I was five when it happened, he explained. My dad's been locked up ever since. He wasn't allowed to have any contact with us. We could visit once we became legal adults, but I never felt the need. That's terrible. I'm so sorry that happened. You didn't have any family you could stay with? I asked, afraid I was now hitting a raw nerve. Well, my dad's family is mostly in South America. He's the only one who came to the US. And anyone on my mother's side is just panhandle trailer trash. They all had prior arrests. Most of them were felons. They weren't about to let two kids go live with them. So my sister and I hopped around from house to house until we aged out. Honestly, I don't know where I'd be if I hadn't gotten a full ride to go to Wellington. Really? You got a big scholarship, I asked. Yeah, there's this foundation that gives scholarships to kids from foster care who are good at science, and I got in. Just hope I'll be able to go on and get my PhD, but I don't know if I can afford that right now. Wow, I didn't know you liked physics that much, I commented, remembering his major from when we met freshman year. Of course. I mean, what's a bigger mystery than understanding the universe? He said. Huh, I never thought of it that way. There was a strange pang in my heart, like the one you get when you realize something is sad and beautiful at the same time. As I noticed I was liking Marco more and more, that pang turned to guilt. If everything was so good with Paul, how could I have these feelings for someone else? What are you thinking about? asked Marco, realizing that I had been quiet for so long. I jumped a little. I had spaced out so much I had forgotten where I was. Oh, um, nothing. Just how this disaster is supposed to happen to me, I guess. I was worried about Heather and Charlotte's warning, but right now, questioning my relationship with my boyfriend was worrying me even more. I know. This all seems scary, but at least you've got a warning. Just be extra careful. He took a deep breath. And, um, if you ever need anything when this thing does hit, I'm here to help. Whatever it takes. Another few weeks had passed, and no life-threatening calamity had rocked my life off its foundations the way Heather had forewarned. Thanksgiving came and went. I went up alone to see my family, telling Paul he could come visit over winter break. Recently, we had grown closer, and I was now starting to see him as the one I was supposed to be with. We had gone to the movies a few nights ago and saw one of those awful superhero movies I hate. It was a rare, surprisingly warm night for fall, and after the show, we sat on the roof of his car and talked. Eventually, we got to the topic of our future 
future together and we started planning the whole thing. We were going to live in the city after graduation. I'd get some job in publishing. He would get a nice corporate job as an accountant with a comfortable salary. After a few years, we'd get married, move upstate, maybe even close to my family in Massachusetts. We'd have four kids, raise them all Catholic, get an adorable New England home and decorate it with thousands of lights each Christmas. I fell in love with the life we could have. It felt like he really understood me. As happy as I was about where things were going with Paul, I still was glad to have Thanksgiving break alone at my family's so I could clear my head a little bit. I saw all of my relatives gathered around my mother's large dining table with an extension put in to accommodate us all. But despite the house being filled with people, I felt lonely. This wasn't uncommon. In fact, it took being away from home for so long to remind me how I used to feel this way all the time as a kid. My father with his large build, curly hair, and pudgy red face would scoop me up in a hug whenever he saw me, but that's where the closeness stopped. He was always gone on business trips, disappearing for two to three days at a time, often coming home at three in the morning and waking up the next day with a sour look on his face. My two older brothers never had much interest in me outside of their obligatory protectiveness towards their younger sister. They couldn't talk sports, action movies, or politics with me. Now that I was too grown up to be tackled and tickled until I cried, they didn't really know what to do with me. And my mom? Well, she was too busy taking care of everyone else to have a free moment to listen to my problems. I even came down early on Thanksgiving morning, just to try to get her alone. She stood there in the kitchen in what I call her mom uniform. A plain t-shirt, jeans with an elastic waist, and a gold cross on a small chain across her neck. She was reading from an old cookbook while pushing her straight auburn hair back behind her ears. Oh honey, you're up so early, she said. Yeah, um, I actually got up to talk to you, I confessed. Oh, that's sweet of you, she said. I wanted to know if you believe in destiny, I asked. <laughs> In what, dear? She couldn't hear me over the clanging of pulling baking sheets out of the cupboard. In destiny, I said louder. You know, fate, like some things are planned for you already and you can't do anything about it. Or maybe you can do something, but it's only so much. Well, you know I haven't thought much about it. She pushed a button on the stove and the pilot light swelled on inside the oven. It's just that I've been having these things happen when... I started when I was interrupted by the sound of the back door opening and then being slammed closed. In walked my father, looking worse than I'd ever seen him. His eyes were hollow and his face worn. As he walked by us to climb up the stairs, I saw one of his hands was red and swollen with long gashes running across the knuckles. Dad, are you all right? I asked. I'm fine, sweetheart. Just keep helping your mother, he said, barely able to look at me. He stomped back upstairs. It's almost seven in the morning. Is he just getting in? I asked her. Oh, you know how it goes. If one of the guys on the night shift has a problem, he has to go and take care of it, she said, barely alarmed by the state her husband was in. My father was a manager at a private security company that had guards working around the clock. I was used to the job taking up much of my father's time and energy, but I had never seen him like this. Anyway, we were talking about fate. To answer your question, my mom continued, I don't really believe that anything happens unless God wants it to happen. So I just say, Put your faith in him. I knew that when my mom talked about religion, it was a sign that the conversation was done. Okay, I said, leaving the kitchen. The rest of the four-day weekend went by in a boring daze. The only part I enjoyed was locking myself in my old room for a few hours to finish up my novella and emailing it to Professor Jameson's literary magazine. By the time it was over, I was glad to find myself back at my house that I shared with Morgan and Grace. A little later that week, I was returning home from studying at the library. 
I was about to stick my key in the door when it opened in front of me, causing me to stumble forward. It was Morgan. She was dressed in a cute but tight pink party dress. Her messy blonde hair had been combed into a perfect bun, and she had traded in her signature Ugg boots for strappy heels. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, she said, pulling me inside. What? I wasn't in the mood for her perky attitude. Well, first of all, I've been dying for you to come home because I wanted to take you to this amazing only two more weeks left of school party my friend Nicole Sorority is throwing, but something else happened and I am so excited for you, she said, throwing her arms around me. And why is that? I asked, hugging her back. He told me not to say anything, but honestly, I can't keep a secret. Paul came by a few hours ago and he asked if I could let him into your room. At first, I was kind of sketched out by this and I was like, um, no, you're not going into my friend's room without her permission. Then he told me he was going to look through your jewelry box so he could get your ring size. She then let out an excited screech. My ring size, I repeated, still processing what she was telling me. He's going to propose at your parents' house on Christmas Eve. Isn't that the most romantic thing ever? She stared at me, mouth wide open, as she waited for a response. Oh my god, I said. You're going to be the most beautiful bride. By the way, I told him rose gold, princess cut, and at least two carrots, nothing less. I hope you like it, she beamed at me. Um, this is amazing, I can't believe it, I said. So why don't you go get dressed up and come celebrate with me, she said. Nah, I don't think Paul would like me going out to one of those things, I said. You're right, you're practically an old married woman now. No place for you at a college party, she joked. I forced myself to laugh with her. All right, get going. You want to get there before campus security shuts it down, I said, moving to the side so she could get out the door. She grabbed her coat and waved goodbye. Don't wait up. As soon as she left, I rushed upstairs to my room. He's proposing? It's way too soon, I thought. Our relationship isn't there. And maybe he took this conversation about our future a little too seriously. And what about my feelings for Marco? I had limited my interaction with him, hoping my feelings would go away, but it wasn't really working. The last few weeks with Paul had been good. I enjoyed his company more than usual, and he wasn't pushy about sex the way he had been. But there was a part of me that wanted to. I wanted to be that gorgeous young bride in a sleek white gown, getting married to a perfectly pleasant and respectable young man. We would have it at the Holy Cross Cathedral. I could see the altar lined with white roses, the light pouring in from the stained glass windows as our families looked on from the pews. And then we'd have a perfect little life as I brought a few round-faced babies into the world. Getting married and having kids were big on my life's to-do list. I used to keep myself up at night worrying about when I would get married, fearing it would take forever for me to find a decent man to marry, only to be too old to have kids. Marrying Paul at 22 would take care of that problem. Plus, it would get rid of the guilt I had for liking Marco. I'll do it. I'll say yes, I convinced myself. I'll marry him, and that's that. My phone rang. It knocked me out of my internal monologue. A number I didn't recognize appeared on the screen. Hello? I answered. Hi, Fiona, said a woman's voice. It's Miriam, Grace's mom. She hasn't been answering my calls and I was wondering if you could check on her. We're really worried. Of course, I started, but I thought she was supposed to be heading home for the weekend. Grace wasn't much of a social creature and I had gotten used to her disappearing to take the three hour bus ride home every weekend. I crept out of my room and made my way to Grace's door. No, she didn't come home. She said she was too stressed by school to leave. Miriam explained to me. She didn't say anything about this to me, I confess. It felt like I had been ignoring the girl who was supposed to be my best friend for the last few months while I had worried endlessly about the letters I was receiving from Charlotte. I tapped on Grace's door before saying, Hey Grace, it's Fiona. Are you alright? Your mom's on the phone. I'm fine. Tell her I'll talk to her later. Grace called out in a sharp tone. I had never heard her sound like this. 
She says she'll call you back soon, I told her mom. Miriam gave a worried sigh, thanked me for my help, and hung up. I went back into my room to read some of the course material for my upcoming classes this week. An hour or two passed before I heard Grace's door open. Fiona? She called down the hall. Yeah, I replied. Will you hang out with me in my room for a bit? This was odd. Grace hadn't been in the mood to hang out in weeks. Um, okay. I tossed my book to the side and went to her room. I pushed back the partially open door to see the entire room illuminated by candles. On the floor, there were two pillows and two glasses of wine. Something creaked behind me. I turned to see Grace's emaciated figure slide out from behind the door. She pushed it closed and hunched over the doorknob. Metal clanked and banged, but within a few moments, she had ripped our side of the doorknob off and slipped it into her pocket. What's going on? I asked her. My heart leapt into my throat. I was now locked in a room full of candles, disobeying Charlotte's warning. This is it. This has to be it. Sitting down on one of the pillows she had placed in the middle of the room, she said, I don't want anyone to interrupt us. She didn't look like the friend I had known. She easily had dropped 15 pounds. Her clothes were dripping off her limbs and sagging at the waist. Worst of all, she gave off this feeling of being fragile, like one wrong word would cause her to shatter before me. Sit down, please. She held out her hand and motioned towards the other pillow across from her. Shaking, I did as she asked, too afraid and too unsure of myself to question her. Grace smiled when I sat down. She took a swig of wine and its maroon color filled the cracks in her lips with a reddish stain. Come, join me, she handed me a glass. I held it to my lips and took a few sips to appease her. Good, she said with a wide smile on her face. Grace, we need to talk. I think you're... I started. Grace put up a finger and reached behind her. Look what I found. She held up a photo of us. It was from her 15th birthday. Her mom had tried to convince her to have this big party and invite our entire class, but all she wanted was a movie night with me and a few other friends. But because her mom was one of those scrapbook-obsessed moms, she snapped a bunch of pictures of us hanging out in Grace's basement. The photo she was holding up was of the two of us biting into a sprinkle-covered cupcake. I can still taste it, like I'm eating it now, she said, tears welling in her eyes. I think that might have been the last day I was truly happy. She took two huge gulps of wine, almost emptying the glass. I mirrored her instinctually and drank more as well. What do you mean? We've had lots of good times since then. Yeah, they might have been fun, but I haven't been free since. Free since what? I asked her. From all the pressure and the stress? Free from the pain and guilt of remembering Samuel? Since he died and, and I dedicated myself to becoming a doctor? It's been nothing but studying hard, doing sports and piano and all this extracurricular crap just so I could get into a good college. And then I got in, and now it's more studying and more extra work to make sure I get into a good medical school. And then that's gonna be so much worse and so much harder for me, and I can barely even handle right now. I'm not cut out to be a good doctor, and I can't live up to it. And I can't live up to it, so why should I even bother? If I don't help save other people's lives, what's the point of this all? It's worthless. Tears were streaming down her face as she went on. And if that wasn't bad enough already, she paused to wipe her eyes with her sleeve. Professor Williams gave me a C on my last assignment, and not because it was bad, but because I had taken too much time to get it done. It was a week past due, and now that C is going to completely tank my grade point average, and I can kiss Yale goodbye. That means there's no point of any of this. There has been no point of trying this hard in the first place. She took another mouthful of wine, draining the glass. Worst of all is, I'm lonely. I do nothing but study, and I can't hang out with you or anyone else because I feel guilty about not studying, and I can't talk to anyone about this because no one else will understand. So this is the only way. 
Of course you can talk to me. I'll always understand, I said to her. Maybe, maybe not. When this is all over, we can spend forever together. Just hanging out and talking like we used to. It's going to be perfect. When what's over, I took a few more sips of my wine and I started to feel dizzy. This life, she said. What do you mean? I tried to stand up, but the alcohol was going straight to my head. I can't handle being alive anymore. It's too stressful. It's too painful. I'm such a failure anyway. I'm not good enough for it. I'm not cut out for it, she said, the life starting to drain from her face. No, you're not a failure. I reached out to hug her, but I fell forward and onto her lap. She collapsed over on top of me. She still had that photo in her hands and pulled it up to my face. It will be like this forever when we go. That's why I had to take you with me. Go where, I asked, feeling overcome with sleepiness. Heaven, the other side. Whatever the next life is, she said, closing her eyes. We might even be able to see Samuel. An electric wave of anxiety ran through my spine and it shook me out of my stupor. Grace, I pushed myself up to my knees and shook her. Her eyes flitted open. Grace, what did you do? She couldn't speak. She pointed behind her with her arm, barely able to control her limbs. I squinted through the haziness in my eyes. On her nightstand sat an empty bottle of wine and a tipped over bottle of her sleeping pills. The blue ones. She drugged the wine. I got to my feet and lunged for the door. My hands scraped at the rough wood that was around the hole where the knob used to be. I shoved my fingers inside, trying to find anything that might release the door. My arms and legs felt like they were filled with sand. I was losing control of my muscles as I dropped to the floor in front of me. The light from the candles dimmed and the corners of my vision blurred. Even though I was terrified, my heart was beating slower and my lungs struggled to fill with air. I was about to lose hope and drift into unconsciousness when there was a knock at the door. The Dead Letters Podcast is written and produced by me, VP Morris. If you enjoyed today's episode, please help support the show by leaving a five-star review. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.